This morning we're going to be looking at Galatians chapter 3, verse 26 to chapter 4, verse 7. So if you have a Bible, please do have it open. Um, turn to Galatians 3, have it there in front of you. Galatians 3, 26 to 4, 7. And the title I've given to this morning's message is A New Identity. That's what we're going to be discovering this morning. A new identity, our new identity as Christians in Christ. Let's begin with God's Word, reading God's Word from verse 23. Let's just sort of dip back just a little bit, get the context. Verse 23. Now before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. I mean that the heir, as long as he's a child, is no different from a slave, though he is the owner of everything, but he's under guardians and managers until the date set by his father. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of the world. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those who were under the law, so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. So you are no longer a slave, but a son. And if a son, then an heir through God. What a passage. Let me ask you here at the outset, do you ever struggle with knowing who you are? Ever find yourself wondering where you really belong and fit in? One way to describe the problem that the Galatians have been wrestling with all of this time would be to say that they have been struggling with questions of identity. They came, like all of us do, with all sorts of baggage and history, with things that made them more like some people and less like other people. And for them, of course, one ingredient in the midst of all that was the question of ethnicity. They were largely Gentile Christians rather than Jewish Christians, and they weren't sure what that meant for whether they fitted in. Did faith alone in Jesus make them fully accepted members of God's people, or were they somehow second rate? Did they still not yet entirely fit in? And perhaps you can relate to that feeling. You know, you, you've turned from your sin. You've put your trust in Christ. You understand that that's what makes someone a Christian. And yet, perhaps at times, you still feel like an outsider looking in. Like a visitor to the party, standing on the sidelines, wondering if you're really invited, whether you really belong amongst all these other Christians. Perhaps your uneasiness comes at times from looking at certain aspects of your own life, your own challenges and battles and everyday circumstances and feeling like somehow you fall short. 
Or maybe it comes from looking at the lives of other Christians around you and feeling like their lives just seem to be more together. And so you're left wondering, am I a lesser model of Christian? Is that kind of a, a second-grade version? Am I an imposter? Do I, do I really belong? Am I really a part of all of this? This morning's passage, at its heart, is all about this question of identity and belonging and what it is that makes us truly fit in. And as we're going to see, God's, God's answer to our identity crisis is far, far better than anything the world could ever offer to us. I've got three simple headings this morning. Um, what we once were in our sin, then what God has done to intervene, then who we now are in Christ. So I'm going to sort of pull out these three themes as we go through. I think these are the three themes that Paul touches on. The first thing then we see here is what we once were in our sin. Paul tells us, plain and simple, we were once captives, prisoners, and slaves. And the first thing that I think should stand out to us there and strike us about that is the loving honesty of God's words. The Bible is a very honest book, isn't it? Have you found that when you read it? It's a very honest book, very honest with us about our condition and our state before God, when, especially when we were without Christ. Often the world's solution to a person that's struggling with identity or feeling like they don't fit in is simply to build that person's self-esteem. We're told to big yourself up or have others big you up. Tell yourself, like Mary Poppins, that you are practically perfect in every way. Self-help books and online articles encourage us to start each day by looking in the mirror and telling ourselves how awesome we are. You're You're handsome. You're smart. You're successful. Today, nothing can stand in your way. Giving you a little window into my morning. You just have to believe in yourself, is what the world says. Don't listen to any self-doubt or any external criticisms. Don't believe in the negative reviews. Pretend they don't exist. Actress Joanna Lumley confessed that she actually tore up reviews about herself that said anything negative because by tearing them up, she could pretend they didn't exist. And that's one way to try and, try and deal with this. The problem is this just-believe-in-yourself approach and, and this don't-listen-to-any-criticism approach is a very fragile place for us to live. Pop star Robbie Williams, and I'm really showing my age here by the celebrities that I know, he speaks of how he tries to live like this. He says, do you know how I get through being self-critical? Never listen to it, ever. If I listen to it, perhaps my deepest, darkest fears will be proved right. And then I wouldn't get on stage again. So so the goal and and the world's remedy is to try and live with a carefully constructed self-image. But because it's imaginary and not real, it really is like living on a knife edge. Even the smallest dose of reality can bring it crumbling to the ground. It's not an honest or a happy place to live. And if we've tried to live there, we'll know how unsettling this can be. But God doesn't do this. He doesn't lie to us just in order to give us a quick fix, fake and fragile self-identity. His word paints for us an honest and genuine picture of who we really are, warts and all. And I actually discovered this week where that phrase warts and all comes from. Uh, Apparently, it it was the instruction that Oliver Cromwell gave to the painter who was doing his portrait. 
And so he said to the painter, I mean, we live in the world of Photoshop where we're really touching up and making things look better. He said to the artist, he said, I desire you would use all your skill to paint my picture truly like me. And do not flatter me at all, but remark all the roughness, pimples, warts, and all. There we go. That's where it comes from. We're going to rediscover in a few minutes, if we've, if we've perhaps lost sight of it this morning, that a new identity has been given to us in Jesus that is more amazing than anything we ever could have dreamed up or imagined on our own. But the only way to get there is by first of all having this warts and all portrait painted of us, like Cromwell, so that we can see just how broken and messed up and sinful we are on our own. And so Paul says, before Christ, we were all held captive. We were all imprisoned by our sin and by the law. Thinking we could be saved by the law, we became enslaved to it, trying and failing to keep it. Uh, And this is what Paul means later on in chapter 4, verse 3, when he says, we were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. What, What principles is he talking about? Well, I think he's talking about the principle of trying to justify ourselves and trying to make ourselves acceptable to God and acceptable to other people. Now, in one sense, he's talking, of course, about God's people under the Old Testament law. But what's really eye-opening is then down in chapter 4, verse 9, Paul uses the same phrase to describe the idolatrous practices of the Galatians in their pre-Christian lives. Meaning, here's what that means. It means it doesn't matter if you're a Jew or a Gentile. Whether you're living with God's law or without it, everyone outside of Christ is ultimately trying to justify themselves and save themselves and reinvent themselves every day. And that is still the case in our world today. Whether it's through these pep talks and building your self-esteem in the mirror whether it's through religious observances and striving to always be on our best behavior, or whether it's through desperately pursuing success and praise and respectability in the eyes of other people, it's all about trying to make ourselves acceptable in our own strength. It's all about trying to reach a standard that we will never reach. And Paul is saying nothing about that is freeing. It is slavery. It's captivity. It is a life of imprisonment. It's no wonder then that it's such a miserable pursuit. It's no wonder that so many people in our world today struggle so deeply with, with, um, with issues of anxiety and identity and self-image. It's no wonder that people find themselves in this ever-deepening identity crisis that nothing seems able to shift. It's no wonder that no amount of self-help and self-esteem can ever cure this, never take away our deep-seated unease. There is just one remedy, one solution to such a crisis, divine rescue from outside of us and not self-rescue from within. Divine rescue from outside of us, not self-rescue from within. And so that is the second thing that Paul draws our attention to in this passage this morning. Second of all, what God has done to intervene. What would it take, think for a moment, what would it take to rescue us from the warts and all portrait that's just been painted for us of what we once were in our sin? The thing is, the truth is, I think we often underestimate 
rather than overestimate what it would take to make us new. We think, I just did a little bit of work in the morning, a little bit of work in front of the mirror, and, and I can make everything okay. We, we underestimate what is needed. But according to Paul, it takes nothing less than an act of God himself. And not just any act of God, but the most lavish, generous, sacrificial act of God there could ever be. Have a look down at verse 4. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his Son. Behold what the Father has done to make us his own and to make us new. God sent forth his Son, the the most valuable person he could ever send. We all understand in life, don't we, that, that the more vital and important a task is, the more important it is that the person coming to do it has the right credentials. Uh, and so, so if, you wanna, if you want someone to put a picture hook up for you, you might ask your 11-year-old if they fancy having a go. Okay, it's a good learning experience. Not, not too much can go wrong. So you draw them in to help. Uh, but if you want someone to build you a new home, well, then you don't look to your 11-year-old to get involved with the building project. You, you start hitting Google. You start looking for the five-star reviews. For such an important task, you want the very best and most qualified builder you can find. Well, there is nothing more important and more vital to our lives on earth and to our eternal well-being than that we have a fully qualified redeemer to set us free. And so here, Paul lays out for us Christ's perfect saving credentials. Uh, He gives not a five-star review, but a five-million-star review to remind us just how perfectly qualified Christ is to do here what we ourselves could never do. So look again. First of all, he says he's God's own son, the eternal son of the Father. He's the second person of the Trinity, fully God, eternally pre-existent, sent down from heaven into the world in which we live. Secondly, Paul reminds us he was born of a woman, Born like us, born as one of us. The word became flesh and dwelt among us. Fully God, but also now become fully man. Thirdly, he says he was born under the law, which which is another way of saying, to borrow Paul's earlier language from last week, that he entered not just our world, but our prison cell. Though he was without sin, he was born under the law to be truly identified with sinners and then to do what we could never do, to perfectly obey and fulfill every last letter and apostrophe and full stop of God's law, to keep every part of what we had broken. And then fourthly and finally, Paul tells us, he did all of this to secure our eternal redemption. Verse 4, to redeem those who were under the law. It's the very same word we were rejoicing over a couple of Sundays ago. Uh, Chapter 3, verse 13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law. It means to purchase another's freedom, to pay in full for the release of a slave from their slave master. That The law was our slave master. And try as hard as we might, we couldn't escape it, we couldn't keep it. As we've already seen in our portrait this morning, no amount of rule-keeping or self-help books or impressing others could ever set us free or unlock a single one of those chains. But God in his mercy had no intention of 
letting us languish in those chains forever. And so he sent forth his son to pay the price to free us, to pay every last penny of what we owed. He sent Christ to die for us, to bear the curse for us, to shed his blood for us in order once and for all to secure our redemption, to free us from all of our performance treadmills we get on each day, to free us from all our hopeless attempts to justify ourselves, to purchase for us everlasting forgiveness and acceptance. Which brings us to our third and final heading this morning. We're going to spend a little more time here. Who we now are in Christ. Who we now are in Christ. In some ways it's hard to know where to begin. Well, Let's begin with what we've just seen. If you're a Christian here this morning, you have been completely redeemed. And that in itself is astounding and incredible. Just think about it. You and I have been redeemed. You and I have been forgiven. You and I have been set free. This is a gift of unfathomable grace that God has given to us in Jesus. But have you also noticed in this morning's passage that redemption isn't all that we received? Redemption is, in fact, a means to our receiving an even greater blessing after it or because of it. Did you see that when we read it earlier? Did you see the ultimate end goal of why God sent his son to our rescue? Look again at verse 5. To redeem those who were under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. The reason I'm, I want to te- I'm teasing that out a little bit this morning, maybe we didn't spot that at first, is because I think sometimes in our thinking, we mistakenly stop short in appreciating the full extent of what God has done for us in Jesus. We stop short of fully appreciating what God has now made us in Christ. And that stopping short, I think, is one of the main causes of our continuing, even as Christians, to have something of an identity crisis, to go on wrestling with whether we really belong, whether we're really fully and completely accepted in God's family. It's a bit like being given a a luxury camper van, but only going to and fro to the shops in it. It's a bit like being given a cruise liner, but thinking it's only there to go around the harbour. It's a bit like being given an aeroplane, but thinking it's only there to taxi up and down the runway. Now, those are three very imperfect examples. Being brought out of slavery to sin is infinitely better than all of those things. But here's the point I'm trying to make. It's common for us to think a lot about what we've been rescued from. And not always in equal measure about what we've been rescued to. In redemption, we celebrate and we rest in the fact that our sins have been transferred over to Jesus. uh, That he bore our sins and purchased our pardon. That in him, all of our sins are forgiven. They've been thrown into the deepest ocean. They've been taken from us as far as the east is from the west. We, We cannot think or talk or sing enough about that redemption. But at the same time, some of us perhaps fail to think as much about how In exchange for our sins, all of Christ's rights and privileges were transferred in the other direction, from him to us. So our sins went from us to him, but so much has been transferred then from him to us. 
his righteousness, his life, and especially in, in this case this morning, his sonship. That is precisely what Paul shines the brightest spotlight onto in this morning's passage, that when Christ died and rose again, he not only paid for our freedom, he also signed and sealed our adoption papers. He redeemed us in order to not just bring us out of the prison cell, but to bring us all the way into his home, to welcome us into his family. As J.I. Packer writes in his absolute classic book, Knowing God, he says, adoption is the highest privilege that the gospel offers, higher even than justification. Justification, we've been hearing so much about it in Galatians so far. Uh, Packer goes on to say, it is, of course, the primary blessing of the gospel because it meets our primary spiritual need to be forgiven and to be accepted and made right with God. It is undoubtedly, he says, the central blessing of the gospel But it's not the highest blessing. It's not the greatest blessing. Adoption is. Another writer, Tony Merida, he develops this thought. I think he's been reading Packer. He writes, The doctrine of justification makes us right before God the judge. But in the doctrine of adoption, we are loved by God the Father. In justification, the picture is legal. We stand before a judge who makes a pronouncement. But in adoption, the judge not only declares you not guilty, but he also gets up off the bench, comes down to where you are, takes your chains off you, and says, come home with me as my son. And then Packer continues, to be right with God, the judge is a great thing. But to be loved and cared for by God the Father is even greater. And I think here in Galatians, it seems like Paul has been slowly building up to this carefully building up to this revelation, like he's been biding his time to get to this truth of adoption, gradually climbing the great mound of blessings that God has given us in Christ, especially, as we've seen, highlighting the foundational blessing that kind of holds up everything else, that that blessing of justification, being made right with God. But then he's been laying other blessings on top of it until finally he reaches the ultimate one, adoption. Adoption as sons. He, I, I look back through Galatians. He's barely mentioned sonship up to this point. But now the, it's like the dam breaks. And the language of adoption and sons is everywhere throughout this morning's passage. Uh, look at this, verse 26. For in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God. Verse 29. And if you are Christ, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Verse 4 and 5, God sent forth his son so that we might receive adoption as sons. Verse 6, and because you are sons. Verse 7, so you are no longer a slave but a son. And if a son, then an heir. It's as if God is speaking to us through a megaphone this morning, saying to us, do you see it yet? Are you getting the message yet? You are my sons. You've been adopted. You're my children. And there is no higher blessing than I could give to you, and I have given it. This is gospel treasure right here, and such a life-transforming pronouncement from God to us. Now, one thing we might be wondering, of course, is why does Paul keep saying we're sons, not sons and daughters? It doesn't seem very inclusive, does it? Um, why not sons and daughters? Are we not all included here? Are we splitting the room down the middle? 
Well, if we take a second look, we will realize this could not be more inclusive. In fact, it would be detrimental to translate the word son here into sons and daughters. Because in Paul's day, in both the Jewish world and in the Greco-Roman world, only sons could be heirs. Only sons could inherit from their fathers. But, but what Paul is saying is that's not the case for God's children. God's promises here in making every believer a son and an heir would have been utterly revolutionary to the first century readers. And they're still revolutionary today when you think about it. That men and women, boys and girls, every single Christian, male or female, duke or dustman, are full-on heirs with Jesus. It doesn't matter if you're a man or a woman. It doesn't matter if you're a boy or a girl. It doesn't matter where you come from or what your past is like. It doesn't matter if you're upper class or middle class or lower class. It doesn't matter. I'm not really sure there are categories, but you know what I mean. It doesn't matter what your home is like or what your health is like, what your abilities are or what you do for a living. It doesn't matter if you're a high-flying businessman or a farm laborer. It doesn't matter if you've been a Christian for 45 years or 45 minutes. No matter who you are, if you've simply put your trust in Jesus, you have been made a son and an heir according to the promise. Every adopted son and daughter has become a fully-fledged member of God's family. I'm going to borrow here an illustration from marriage, uh, but, but it's, very, it's very relevant. It links. Uh, if you can cast your mind back, on Friday, the 29th of April, 2011, the vast majority of our nation, and maybe many others around the world, paused to watch the royal wedding of Kate Middleton to Prince William. And maybe you can remember where you were when you watched it. It was a moving ceremony. She and the prince as well really wanted it to be a people's wedding. And so they invited a good number of people from Kate's home village, which is uh, so quaintly called Buckleberry in Berkshire. I just think that's amazing, isn't it? So English. Buckleberry in Berkshire. Uh, so they invited regular people. The postman was there. The uh, local pub landlord was there. They wanted the shopkeeper and his wife to be there. And it was this kind of modest touch. They wanted to make it all a bit more earthy, a bit more real. But it didn't change the remarkable change that took place in Kate's life that day. On Thursday, the 28th of April, the day before, she was just ordinary Kate Middleton. But a day later, she received a whole new identity. In an instant, when she said, I will, and they were pronounced man and wife, in an instant, she became a fully-fledged member of the royal family with all of the privileges that go with being part of such a family. She was no longer Kate Middleton of Buckleberry, but the Duchess of Cambridge, and now, of course, the Princess of Wales, all by virtue of her marriage into Prince William's family. Every blessing and privilege that was his was now hers as well. It's a change of identity, much like our change of identity as we're adopted into God's family. Okay, well, let's, let's return. Let's apply all of this that we've seen then to the situation Paul was writing into. If you remember, he's trying to defend the Galatians against the lie that they're not fully-fledged members of God's family and that they won't be until they learn the Jewish ropes and they start obeying the law and they get circumcised and so on. Now, Paul, of course, wants them to be free from this false idea that they need to add anything. They need to add religion and works to their faith in order to be accepted. 
And as we said at the beginning, we might sometimes feel something similar. That though we put our trust, we have put our trust in Jesus to save us, still sometimes maybe we feel like we're an outsider. Wondering if we really qualify to be with all of these other Christians. Wondering, maybe on a Sunday morning we look around, do I really fit in? And whether our doubts are due to false teachers out there or the worst of all false teachers that kind of lives in here, our doubts and our fears, Paul is not willing to let us go on being deceived. He is determined to set us straight this morning on who we are and how we got here and where we now belong through faith in Jesus. And so he sets it out plain and simple, verse 26, for in Christ Jesus... You are all sons of God through faith. It really is that simple. If you are a believer, you are a member of God's family. You belong. You fit in. Then he continues, verse 27. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. He's saying we've all been clothed with Christ, all clothed in his righteousness, all dressed in the same family robes of sonship. Just, I was picturing this week the story of the prodigal son as he, as he finally turned for home and he felt like I'm not worthy to come here and uh, I'm all disheveled and I've sinned and I've, I've forsaken my father. I'm going to go home and maybe he'll make me a servant. What does the father do as the son arrives home? Well, the father runs out to greet him. And then immediately he says, wrap him in new robes and put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet and kill the fattened calf. We're going to have a celebration because my son who was lost has been found. He has come home. We have been clothed in Christ. We have put on Christ if you have put your faith simply in Jesus. And so therefore, Paul goes on, Amongst God's people, there is no hierarchy or division. Verse 28, there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one, all one in Christ Jesus. Faith in Christ, then, he is saying, doesn't just get you through the door into the lobby over there and then leave you standing there like a visitor, leaving you to work your own way into the family properly. No, in the blink of an eye, it makes you a part of God's family. Faith in Christ makes you one of the family. Saving faith in an instant completely transforms our identity. It makes us a child of God, a co-heir and a family member with every other Christian. Do we have things in common with other Christians we meet with on a Sunday? We have the most amazing thing in common. Co-heirs with them in Christ together. We share our faith and we share an inheritance with every other Christian. We're part of the same family. Now, Paul is not saying here that every distinction disappears. That would be terrible, wouldn't it? Imagine if we all just got, kind of got turned into weird clones, blank faces, and we all dress the same and look exactly the same and act the same. No, some Christians are still going to be Jewish. Some Christians are still going to be Gentiles. Uh, praise God, we have got many different nationalities in the room with us this morning. That is a beautiful thing. Half of us are still male, half of us are still female, and that's by God's design, and that remains a beautiful thing. Despite what our culture might say, uh, this, this verse has sometimes been twisted terribly to argue for erasing gender. That's not what this is about at all, quite the opposite. This is about the removal of all the old barriers that once divided us. 
that maybe divided us as men and women, Jew and Gentile. It's about a richly diverse group of people, all being united as brothers and sisters, all equally loved, all equally belonging, all equally accepted, all one in Christ Jesus. Sometimes we might look around the room, and this maybe is on a rarer occasion, we look around and we think, I think I'm doing better than most people here, most of these Christians. More often we probably look around and we feel like other Christians are doing far better than we are. And we might worry in that moment that therefore God must probably love them more. He probably accepts them more readily in the family than he does us. But that simply isn't true according to the gospel. We're all God's children equally through faith in Christ. None of us are here by merit. Okay, if we think we've got in by merit, we've, we've misunderstood it completely. We're not here by merit. But we are here by grace. And we are all here by adoption. And that means God loves all of us as much as he loves Christ, his only begotten son. I was going to say look around this room this morning, but uh, for, for many of us, that's not a comfortable thing to do. So you can look around or imagine you're looking around, sort of out the cursory glance out of the side of your, side of your eye line. Look at all these people. If they're, if they're a Christian, they belong here. Let me just say, if you're not a Christian, you're very welcome here. We love that you're here. But when you see a Christian, you see someone who belongs to this family, belongs to God's universal family. And you belong here in God's family as well. Every believer belongs. Christ has brought us into the closest possible relationship with himself and with one another. But there's still one more layer of relational blessing that comes to us as a result of our adoption. One more thing here this morning, and I think maybe it's actually the absolute crowning treasure. And so we're going to finish with this. Look at verse 6. Because you are sons, God has sent the Spirit of his Son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. Meaning that in making us sons, making us his children, God has welcomed us not just into the richest possible human relationship with one another, but into a whole new kind of relationship with God himself. And this is no mere formal relationship with the God, uh, God our creator, the God who made all things. Not, not this kind of formal, distant relationship where we look on from afar. No, this is a deeply heartfelt and intimate relationship where just like Jesus himself modeled for us, we can now turn to God at any moment, any time in the day, without reservation, and address God as our own dear heavenly Father. Jesus taught us, of course, to pray exactly like that in the Lord's Prayer. Uh, Abba is actually the, just the Aramaic word for Father. It's the very word that would have come off Jesus' lips so often as he took time to talk to his Father in heaven. But having taught us... Now we're told the Father has sent the Spirit of his Son right into our hearts to help us pray like this, to pray from the very depths of our hearts, Abba, Father. Let me encourage you this morning, if you don't do this too often, when you pray, address God often as Father. 
Address him often as father. There is perhaps, perhaps no greater moment in any prayer that we pray than that first moment when we address God in this way as our father in heaven. And, and let's repeatedly address him as we pray. Oh, Father, we pray to you, Father. Thank you, Father. Philip Ryken says, Servants can only say, Lord, but sons are able to say, Abba, Father. Nothing so recognizes and embraces our sonship and our adoption in Jesus than to join with Jesus in addressing his Father as our Father as well. Such prayer helps us, even as we begin to pray, to rest in his fatherly love. It reminds us, even as that first word, Father, leaves our lips, that we belong to him and that we are beloved by him and that we have been bought by him through the precious blood of his son. And on top of all of that, it is a sign of the Spirit's own special work within us that we can draw near to God without fear and address him like this with such confidence. As Paul himself writes in Romans 8, 15, to 17, for you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ. Many people in our world, as we've said, are plagued with questions of identity and belonging, and sometimes, as we said, even as Christians, we can fall back into similar doubts and questions. But God's word to us this morning has given us the perfect help and remedy. He has lifted our eyes, first of all again, to see our perfect Savior who laid down his life to redeem us from slavery so that we might receive adoption as sons through faith alone in him. We have seen that God has placed us in a new family with real flesh and blood brothers and sisters all around us. And we have seen that he has placed within us the spirit of adoption, by which, whether we're alone or together, we can confidently address God as our dear Heavenly Father. This is the perfect remedy for our identity crisis, the perfect remedy for wondering if we belong. Let's turn to our Father in heaven now and pray together. Our Father in heaven, oh Father, we thank you that we can address you in this way. Lord, that we can address you as Father just as Jesus himself addressed you as Father all throughout the days of his life. Father, we thank you for sending your one and only Son to redeem us from the curse of sin and redeem us from the curse of the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. We thank you, Father, that we can sing with rich assurance the words that we're about to sing in a moment, that you have loved us like you love your Son, that we are heirs with Christ, bought by his blood. Oh, how great the love that we've been shown. We're your children now. You made us your own. We thank you, Father, in the name of your Son, our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen.